Hello, this is an episode of Finally, the podcast with Michael Furtick. I am very proud to host today Bill Browder, a already legend in the field of human rights, a very successful investor, and an early warning person on the threats of Vladimir Putin and Russia. Dare I say, we are meeting today a future winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He's already been nominated for it, and I predict he has a very good chance of being a winner in the future. Bill, welcome. I'm going to give your bio in a second, but first I want to say welcome. Well, great to be here, and, and uh, I think you're way too optimistic about my, all of my prospects, but it's nice, nice of you to, to put all that stuff out there. Fair enough. So I will give you a chance to edit, amend, change, delete, add to the biographical summary I'm going to give. Um, I always give my guests a chance to edit. But here it goes. Uh, Bill Browder, born in the United States. I think you turned 60 this year. You uh, are the son of a very famous mathematician, Felix Browder, and the grandson of Earl Browder, who ran for president in 1936, I think, on the American Communist Party ticket. Um, and I'm going to mention a little bit more about him because I see some at least high-level parallels you can disagree with. Um, he was a very determined person. Um, he might have been even a stubborn person. He was both in his socialism and his communism, but also Earl Browder in single-handedly trying to change the Communist Party of the United States after he fell out with them. He was expelled from the Communist Party. He also spent a long time in and with Russia, then the Soviet Union, and your, his relationship with that country was important to him in different ways. He was, unlike you, I think he was a spy for the Soviet Union, unlike you, I do not think that's who you are. Uh, there are many differences as well, but there's some DNA there in terms of the relationship with Russia, Soviet Union, and the kind of grit, that formidable persistence that he, he had, that you have, that is singular and notable. You went to the University of Chicago, Bill then went to Stanford Business School, and then skipping a few steps in your career, um, you became a very early and important and successful investor in the new Russia of the mid-1990s. Um, I think you arrived there kind of full on, perhaps a little sooner, but full on around 1996. You opened your own operation there. Hermitage Capital Management is an asset manager. I think you focused principally or in some large part on Russia. You operated in Russia. You were there for that heady uh, open time or comparatively open time. We'll invite you to talk about that. Been, you moved to London. Then in 98, you became a UK citizen and renounced your US citizenship, which I'd like to ask you about later. Um, and then famously, around about 2005, and you'll give us more detail later as you'd like. You got into, Bill got into conflict with Vladimir Putin's government and they persecuted, the government persecuted Browder, they persecuted the fund, his firm and his colleagues. And most importantly, dare I say most importantly, maybe most importantly, most significantly, most historically significantly, they threw a colleague of yours in jail, Sergei Magnitsky, and he died in jail in 2009. The Russians claim that he died of natural causes, but just about everybody else thinks that's bunk, that he was killed or deliberately mistreated until he died of such causes in jail. And then at some point in time, you decided to devote your life, so it seems, to defeating Vladimir Putin, to defeating his government, 
And a lot has come from that. Um, the Magnitsky Laws, named after your former colleague, which you have occasioned, you've caused to be named after your former colleague, have been passed, enacted, statutes across Europe, the United States, perhaps elsewhere, uh, perhaps most famously for Americans, the Magnitsky Act of 2012, which was later expanded a few years later, which effectively is what has been allowing the U.S. government to sanction the people involved or suspected of being involved in human rights abuses in Russia today in light of the conflict of Ukraine. So it is, we're talking to the guy who lobbied the government of the United States to pass a law with support of congressmen and senators that is the mechanism by which the federal government is sanctioning these people. So this is the guy, and this is the story, the reason these laws exist, and you've continued that campaign elsewhere. And as I see it, you have become virtually public enemy number one outside of Russia. There are some sort of Russians themselves, but public enemy number one, let's say, outside of Russia for Putin, for the Russian government. In fact, uh, the Russian government tried to use its enormous legal power before it was ostracized. In 2017, they issued a red notice for you, which is an Interpol notice for your arrest. Um, they've gone to great lengths to silence him, including intimidating him. And I was a witness to this. Bill will tell the version of the story he wishes to, but in broad terms, uh, Bill and I were at a conference about 10 years ago, and there was at the time an extremely senior public Russian official in this large room of, let's say, 800, 1,000 people speaking from the podium, and Bill and I separately, I was not sitting near Bill at the time, Bill and I separately were audience members and not participating. And this public official from the podium threatened Bill Bratter's life in front of everybody. And uh, I'll tell the story a little bit from my perspective, Bill. Uh, you can retell the story from yours. Bill was visibly shaken after this speech. Uh, Russia was still very much at this time 10 years ago an attractive power, an attractive economic opportunity, especially for the powerful, rich and powerful people attending this particular conference, which is a well-known conference. And I was astonished to see that after, as the speech ended and people left the room, you were effectively sitting by yourself against the wall uh, in this room or right outside the room, shaken and digesting what had just happened, and people were sort of avoiding you. And they were avoiding you, I think, because they were afraid, because they had somewhere to go, but also because they were afraid that maybe they didn't want to annoy this Russian hugely important person, person or maybe they were afraid of being associated with you. And for no particular reason, you and I knew each other lightly then, I came over to you because I saw this guy, I saw what happened, I witnessed this threat against your life. And I saw this guy, this human being, looking shell-shocked and frightened, I think, if I can say, or at least worried. And I came over and I said, look, I'll be a witness for you. you know, I'll, I will serve as a witness for you in this moment if you want to file a complaint or otherwise give testimony. And, and we never did. I guess it's pretty well known that your life is under threat from Russia <laughs> anyway. So it turns out that was just one incident among many. But that was a moment in time that you and I uh, happened to share. And of course, I witnessed you were the principal person in that story. So that'll bring us to today. But before we continue, Bill, is there anything about this bio you'd like to correct, amend, edit, and you shouldn't be ashamed? You can, uh, there's no arrogance here. There, if, you, if I've got it wrong, you should correct the record uh, right now. <laughs> I'm 59 years old, not 60. That's the only, uh, only thing. Well, I said you turn 60 this year. You will turn 60 this year, no? No, next year. Next year. That's true? Okay. <laughs> All right. Anything else?
Every day, you have to hang on every day. Well, you, look, you don't look a day over some younger age, Bill. There you are. So when you first, let's go back in time a little bit. When you first arrived in Russia, what did you see? And did you see the signs then? I don't mean to first arrive as a youth. Well, you can answer that way. I meant in the mid-90s, in this opening moment that we all thought we, that we remember. Do you, do you remember seeing the signs then of what the world sees now? Um, well, so when I first arrived in Russia, um, so my, my first trip to Russia was in 1992, um, and then I moved there in 1996. And at the time, it was just at the transition. Um, the, end, the Soviet Union ended in 1990, 1991. I think Russia became an independent country in 1991. Um, they wanted to get rid of the communist past, and so they um, declared themselves capitalists. They had a huge mass privatization program. And at the time, it was just complete and absolute chaos. You know, they, mm. they, had, to, they had to break an entire system, a, a 70-year-old system, mm. and, and, and breaking it, um, uh, which they had to do, um, they, they didn't really think much about uh, uh, sort of what, what would be on the other side. And so... Mm. Uh, uh, and, and the main thing that wasn't on the other side was the rule of law and institutions and 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 uh, property rights and and mm. police and all that kind of stuff. And so you basically had this vacuum that was created, which is what created all the business opportunities. But the vacuum also created a a terrible um, hardship for for most Russians. Mm. And significantly, what the vacuum created was the um, an, an allowance, I guess, for criminals um, to, to like enter into the vacuum, to like take over. And so um, it went from a sort of totalitarian state to a, a total chaotic criminal state. And the criminality at the time was just sort of rampant everywhere. Um, and, you know, you, you, um, you had to assume that, that um, if you were wearing flashy jewelry or driving in an expensive car, someone would come and rob you. you, you mm. uh, people were being killed left, right, and center. Bank, there was like the banker wars at the time where like hundreds of bankers were being killed. There was the aluminum wars where um, executives in the aluminum industry were being killed. Mm. Um, and, and it was just complete criminal chaos. But, mm. but for me, it was interesting because it was a time when um, if you just kind of disappeared, you, you know, in the, in the, you, know you, you just didn't show your face you know, to um, drive around in an old car and, and, you know, you just kind of drift into the background, then nobody would really mess with you. And so it was sort of what I would call disorganized crime for a long period of time. And, and you could kind of operate in that world by just, you know, having an anonymous office and, and you know, driving in an old car and, and, and just not showing off. And, uh, and so the, the gangsters were generally, you know, if you... If you had a, a, a watch store or a jewelry store, they'd come and shake you down. Or if you had a nice mm. restaurant, they'd come and shake you down. But if you're running an investment fund, um, you know, <laughs> buying shares that were registered in, in, you know, an offshore jurisdiction that no, nobody knew anything, then you could kind of survive. And so um, nice. at this moment of, of, of disorganized crime, um, I could somehow survive and not mm. sort of victimized. But, but, um, 
what, what nobody could predict at the time was that the disorganized crime would become highly organized crime. Mm. And, and that's, that's what happened in Russia. And it happened uh, with the uh, advent of or the Vladimir Putin coming into power. When he came into mm. power, um, he, he wanted to basically organize all the criminal activities underneath his purview. And, and, uh, and he became the, the mafia boss. And, and, and that's where we are today is, is some version of that mafia. Do you think that was his intent to become a mafia don? Or was it his intent... I mean, guessing here, you may know, you may not know, maybe a surmise, or was it to bring order to this disorganized criminal street kind of gang chaos? Well, that was his pitch to the Russian people was he was going to bring order, which mm -hmm. is what got everybody sort of behind him, including me. At the time, I was really mm. enthusiastic. I thought, oh, great. You know, we, we've gone from Yeltsin, who was, who was a drunk, and he was a <sighs> uh, um, all over the place and unhealthy and, yep. and had given all, all the keys to the to the uh, fortune to, to a bunch of oligarchs. And, and then this, this guy shows up who's sober, sort of a technocrat, speaks English, um, and he says, I'm going to get rid of all this craziness. And, and mm. everybody was like, oh, thank God, this has been terrible. And I mean, it really had been terrible. I mean, the average life expectancy for someone in Russia in that time for a male was like 57 years. I'd already be dead if I was a Russian man. Mm. I mean, it, just, it was terrible. And the... the Professors were driving taxis and nurses were prostituting themselves. Mm, it was a total mm, breakdown of society. And so, mm, you know, this, this, um, this kind of uncharismatic supposed technocrat shows up and he says, we're going to just get everything back into normal here. And, um, and everybody wanted that. There was no question that everyone wanted that. I wanted that. Everybody wanted that. Mm, and, um, mm. and so we were all sort of, you know, rooting for him. And, and for a brief period of time, he was doing, you know, what, what he had promised. He was, like, reforming the laws and cleaning out the stables kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and for, like, a year or two, maybe even two and a half years, it was all looking just boring, um, technocratic, wow. and optimistic. Um, but uh, that was just a sort of placeholder time before he decided to really, like... Uh, show his teeth. Mm -hmm. And the way he showed his teeth was by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia, um, Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. Mm. And he arrests him, he puts him on trial, and he allows the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And all the other oligarchs saw this, and, and when they sentenced Hordakovsky to 10 years in prison, um, all the other oligarchs went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't uh, go the same way as Hordakovsky? And Putin said, it's real simple, 50% for myself. And, and that was the moment that he basically became the mafia boss, the king oligarch, and um, the richest man in the world. How wealthy do you propose, or do you suppose, Vladimir Putin is secretly? Um, you know, I, I did a calculation back in 2017, and I, back then it was like $200 billion. I'm sure the numbers have grown quite significantly. I don't have a firm number to put on that. I haven't done the work. Where, but, does, he, where does he keep it? Where can you keep it if you're Vladimir Putin? Well, this is one of the big things, is that um, he keeps the money with the same oligarchs who um, basically allocated their money to him. They hold the money for him. Uh -huh. um, and and which, is, which is very important, because as we're look, looking for how do we get back at Vladimir Putin for launching this, this murderous war and, and so on, um, 
uh, one of the things we want to do is make sure he doesn't have access to his money. And one of the ways to do that is to freeze the assets of the oligarchs. And so a lot of people are saying, well, the oligarchs, we've frozen their assets. And look, they haven't, um, you, know, uh, you know, nothing has changed in Russia. How, how is this helping? Well, it helps a lot because by freezing their assets, you're freezing Putin's assets. And, and that's a big deal. Let's talk about this just mechanically, because it's not just a question of idle curiosity. In this world of sort of state terror, state criminality that you're observing here, you're describing, when Putin says, yeah, I want half, but you hold on to it for me, how does he make a withdrawal? I mean, it's a funny question, but like, what's the, does he retire at one point and say, okay, then I, then I get, you know, a, a, a dwarf mountain of gold? What, what ha, what, how, what's the mechanics of that kind of thievery? Well, so for, for example, he has a, a house. Um, house is probably the wrong word. He has a, a castle. I've um, seen videos of it, yeah. Um, on the Black Sea um, near Sochi. Right. Um, to, to build it. And, and it's got like the most elaborate stuff. It's got anti-aircraft stuff. It's got, uh, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, and it cost a billion dollars to build. And, and, <laughs> um, and, and, and this is, you know, using cheap Russian builders and, and right. uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is probably like the equivalent of like a $3 billion house somewhere else. <laughs> and um, and how did it work? Well, um, a bunch of oligarchs, you know, wired money into an account. Um, they were told by whoever was organizing the whole thing, wire the money into this account so that we can build this house. Same thing with this. I'm sure you've seen images of this. The largest super yacht that's been frozen by the West is is one in Italy. In Italy, right? It's the one in Italy, is that right? Scheherazade. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Scheherazade, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and um, that one cost, I think, seven, eight hundred million dollars. And again, it was um, a, 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 quote, uh, New Year's gift um, by a bunch of oligarchs to Vladimir Putin. And, and this is the way. And so they basically just, you know, or somebody calls them and says, you know, wire money to do for this project, need money for that. And they do. And that's how it works. So what happened with you? What happened with Hermitage? What happened with Sergei Magnitsky? How did it come to pass that you were targeted, that you came to understand you were targeted, and that it escalated? Well, so before the oligarchs were tamed um, and became Putin's guys, um, they were busy running the biggest scams you could ever imagine um, in the companies that they controlled. And those were the companies that I had invested in, um, in the Hermitage Fund. So my mm. Hermitage Fund was invested in oil and gas companies, metals companies, telecommunications companies, basically the sort of infrastructure, the stuff in Russia that, that was available in the public markets. Mm. And so I owned shares of these companies, but the oligarchs were stealing, you know, I might have owned 1% of a company and the oligarch, let's say owned 50% of the company, but the oligarch was stealing 100% of the profits for themselves. And the oh, wow outrageous schemes you could ever imagine just, mm. just you know the, plundering the plundering the companies they go to Putin Putin says give me half they're well, we put in charge of these companies this is before pre, pre Putin so pre Putin okay so so they're plundering their own companies you're a shareholder you say I'm identifying this fraud I'm saying that, they, that you've got to stop stealing money and, right and um, of course you know there's no law enforcement there's no rule of law there's no contracts there's no courts there's no mm. government but the one thing that there was was a um, uh, media. You could you could 
so you could go to the media, and uh-huh. so we would do this intensive and deep forensic research into the stealing. We, we called it stealing analysis of Russian companies. And then we would share that information with the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and, right. and those types of people. And it was, it was very interesting because at the time that I was doing this was at the time that Putin was fighting with these oligarchs. Uh-huh. Um, uh, before he had arrested Hordakovsky, he was sort of trying to figure out how to, how to like, come through in his promise of taming them. And so there's an expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And, and so um, here I was fighting with the oligarchs because they were stealing money from me. Putin was fighting with the oligarchs because they were stealing power from him. And, um, and so uh, whenever I put one of these scandals out there, and I, I should point out, I've never met the guy. I haven't never in my life met Vladimir Putin. You've never met Vladimir Putin? No. Sure. Um, but when I put these scandals out there, um, he would act on them because they were, they were, it's, you know, our interests were aligned. He was an accidental ally of yours for a time. Yeah. And so <laughs> he was doing really well. And, and by the way, um, every time he acted on them, the share price would go up. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. It was a business model. You know, I could um, you know, invest in like really badly managed, corrupt companies, uh, explain to the world how corrupt they were. And then he would then swoop in and do something about it. It was a great, the best. There act. goes the share price. Okay. Wow. And we made a ton of money uh, off this whole scheme of doing stuff. Um, but then, as I mentioned, Putin arrested the richest oligarch in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy Hordakovsky, the other oligarchs, you know, uh, do this deal with him. And now, after that, every time that I would publicize a scam, which continued, um, it's not like the scam stopped. It's just that Putin became a beneficiary of all the scams. And so every time I would go after the oligarchs post Hordakovsky's arrest, um, Putin was 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 now being exposed as, I mean, not openly, but, but his, his financial interests were affected by my activity. Right. And so uh, in um, uh, November of 2005, I was uh, expelled from Russia. Um, was, Under what pretense? Um, they said I was a threat to national security. Um, did, they, and, did they locate that claim of threat and menace in any particular behavior? Well, no, they, they put a document together. So they, they, they arrested me, they, they expelled me, and then they sent me a letter saying, you're not allowed back into Russia because you're a threat to national security. For no particular reason. They just said you are. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Okay. So um, and it's not as if you can appeal it or anything. And no, so, it's, you're talking to the boss. Right. Uh, and um, it's, their, it's at their discretion who's allowed in and who's not allowed into the country. Right. But I looked at that whole thing and I said, you know, this is... This is um, Awful, but it's not that awful. I mean, you know, being kicked out of the country is hardly a serious sanction compared to what they could do to me. I mean, they do a lot of really bad stuff to people. And so I looked around and I said, well, where, where am I exposed? And I'm exposed in that I had a lot of people working for me in Russia and their family members. And so I organized a, an evacuation <laughs> of everybody who worked for me and all of their dependents, got them out. And once they were out, I said, where else could they get me? Well, they, we have a bunch of money in there. And so we um, sold every security we held in Russia and emptied all of our bank accounts and got all of our, everything out. And, uh, and that was, uh, and I thought that was when the story would end. Turns out that that was just where the story began. Um, what year is this? Can you place this in a year? Yeah, yeah. So this, this would have been uh, 2005 when I was kicked okay. out. 
and then we got everybody out, got all my people out in 2006, and 2000, and then we got all liquidated all of our assets. Um, and so I thought it was all finished, and I set up a new investment fund to invest in other parts of the world. I, you know, set up an office in London, and then I was at a board meeting um, 18 months later. I was in Paris, and um, I get this frantic call from the secretary in our Moscow office, who was the one last person I had over there. Mm. He said, there's 25 police officers waiting in the office right now. And, uh, and then I call my uh, American lawyer in Moscow. I tell him our offices are being raided. He said, ours are too. They're looking for your documents. Mm. And in total, there were 50 police officers raiding my law firm's office and my office looking for the stamps, seals, and certificates for our investment holding companies. Um, they found all those documents uh, at, at their law firm's office. They confiscated those documents. And then the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies, which were empty, by the way, because we had sold everything. So we're empty. So the, the, shell, the, the shells were uh, nationalized or whatever, converted, but there was nothing left in them. Yeah, nationalized would, 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 would suggest that the government, no, but this was, they were, they were um, basically re-registered sort of an identity theft into the name of a guy who had been uh, convicted of manslaughter and let out of jail early to put his name on these documents. So just straight up plunder. They just take them, give them, give them to the bad guy. Here's the manslaughter guy. He's the new owner. That's it. But there's no assets. So there's no economic loss per se at this moment. Okay. Yeah, exactly. okay. So, so I'm, I'm feeling happy that there's no economic loss, but I'm feeling right. terrified that if the police are working with killers to steal companies, I'm going to be walking through Frankfurt airport someday and, uh, you know, I'll be arrested on a Russian Interpol warrant or something. Mm. And so, so I went out and I um, uh, hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, who was a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. He worked for, for an American law firm. And, um, uh, and he was one of these people that could do 10 things in the time it takes others to do. How did one. you meet him? How did you come to, to know that he was so talented? Well, because we, we, we had met Sergey um, because he had done a bunch of work for us during the course of previous years where um, the tax authorities would like freeze our accounts and, um, and then he would go to court and like, you know, challenge them and, and he won every single case. He was like, he had never lost a case. It was just mm. remarkable. So he, um, was, he had been working, let's say, for your business interests as an outside lawyer as part of the firm yeah. and now you approach him to say, hey, maybe do you want to come join me? Is that, no, was that the idea? We didn't hire him in. We, we, we continue to have him as an outside lawyer, but... Oh, you just gave him more was, work. Okay. The job was basically to um, investigate this fraud. And, I mean, we, we had 20 lawyers from different firms doing all different stuff, but this, this was the guy who really knew what he was doing. So you, you decided to hire him to carry on a private investigation of this force, forced conversion of this corporate asset that was empty of value. Yeah. Why, why, why? Just let's stop, just pausing at that moment. Why bother? In other words, in other words, you know, um, it may sound like a silly question today after all that's all the water that's gone under the bridge. But just pausing for a second, what about Bill Browder? What about you? What about your sense of what's right or justice or maybe just accounting nudgedickiness? What is it? What is it about your moment in time then that said, you know what? I feel wronged. A wrong has happened. There's no personnel exposure. There's no capital exposure, but still nonetheless, even though the government, the police, 50 police have come, they've confiscated, they've seized, 
and now they have forcibly converted ownership to this, this other person who's such a bad guy, I'm afraid, why bother pursuing it? Well, very simply, because in order to justify the raid on our office where they got the documents to do the fraud, they opened a criminal case against my chief operating officer, Denisov. Who um, was no longer in Russia, but still was, in jeopardy. He's, yeah, I mean, you know, basically you don't want a criminal case open up against right. any of your people, and, and, uh, and we needed that case closed. And, and we also knew that, that like, you know, when, they, when these things start going bad, they start going bad, and, you know, you know, it's, you know, Interpol, all this kind of stuff. And so very responsive. Okay. So now, now, now you say, okay, Sergey, Mr. Magnitsky, let's go conduct an investigation. That's the, that's the moment we're in. Okay. What's next? And so we, we, um, uh, he conducts an investigation and he, um, discovers all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and ba the basic, the main thing he discovered was that they tried to um, they, they, there was it's a very complicated story, but but basically, they they created a bunch of uh, they created a billion dollars of fake court judgments against our companies. So we no longer own our companies; they've been fraudulently re-registered. Our companies then get sued by companies we've never heard of for a billion dollars. Um, lawyers who represented our companies that we no longer own because they've been stolen from us go to court and plead guilty to a billion dollars of fake liabilities. Incredible. And um, we didn't understand why, why this was going on, and Sergey was to investigate, and he figured it out. The reason why they, they created a billion dollars of fake liabilities is because we had a billion dollars of real profits in the previous year. Um, when I, so when I, when I was expelled from Russia, we sold everything. We had a billion dollars of profits, and we paid $230 million of capital gains tax to the Russian government. And what Sergey had figured out was they created a billion dollars of fake losses through these fake court cases, and then they used those losses, those fake losses, to go back to the tax authorities and to say that there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. And these companies didn't earn a billion dollars, they earned zero. Look, now here's the, and, and then, and then they, they um, used the, um, the, the, the zero to, to amend their tax return uh -huh. of, our of our stolen companies to say, these companies, because they earned zero, we would like that $230 million back. And so they applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007. So actually, actually, the crook who takes charge or whoever's animated him, whoever's puppeting him, puppeteering him, the crook who takes charge, this manslaughter fellow, the convict, who's now nominally in charge of these companies, nominally owner, goes and pretends to fess up to the tax authority using uh, the books that he concocts and says, actually, we had losses. And so give me a tax refund so that he can get the 230 million US dollars back from the tax authority. And then sort of conspires with bad parties to demonstrate that the companies that you used to own that he now owns were malefactors in litigation causes, underlying cause litigation, to establish the losses. Is that the idea? Yeah, so if you wrote it in like a hot, like a Netflix thing, they'd be like, "Nah, we don't believe you." You know, <laughs> it's like it's okay. All right, so all right, we understand now what's happened. Carry on. Yeah, keep going. So the, um, they applied for this uh, illegal tax refund on the twenty third of December two thousand seven. So okay, Christmas, and the the um, refund is approved and paid out um, the next day on Christmas Eve, two hundred thirty million dollars. That's a, that's the swiftest tax authority decision of any size ever. Of course, it's absurd. And, um, and it's also the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. Oh, wow. Congratulations, uh, I should say, right? So on Christmas Eve. So, uh, 
and so Sergei figured this out, and um, uh, and and we, we then uh, tried to uh, figure out what to do with this information, and and we we had this weird assumption, which a lot of people still have today about Putin, which is we thought he was some, some kind of patriot or a nationalist, mm. and that this must be a rogue operation because you know this was just a bunch of uh, officials stealing money not from me but from the Russian government, mm. and. Um, uh, by the way, at this point, um, they've opened up a criminal case against me, uh, mm. in addition to my colleague Ivan. And so there's two criminal cases. They're talking about international arrest warrants. And so right. from our perspective, by publicizing and, and exposing this fraud, we thought that, that um, you know, the whole thing, their, their whole sort of na- nastiness would collapse, that, that, you know, once it's out there, you know, nobody would... You know, really investigate. I mean, this is real money that was being stolen from the Russian government. Has, has there come a time when you've come to understand or suspect who the ultimate beneficiary of that tax refund of a quarter billion dollars U.S. was supposed to be? Is it the manslaughter guy, someone behind him? Did you understand who it would be? We've done all the work. We, um, it's, it's all it's all laid out very nicely in my second book, uh, Freezing Order. But but Thank um, you. The, the, the main uh, the main. Uh, well, I should say the most interesting beneficiary is none other than Vladimir Putin. No kidding, no kidding. How much? How much of the two thirty was he going to get? Do you think? Not, not, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the stuff that we can prove, not not so much. But uh-huh. um, there, there's, um, you know, like it was less than a million. I mean, lots of people got like ten million, whatever. But wow. But that's just what we can prove on paper. In other words, right. so Probably a hell of a lot more than that. But but I, I can see. prove that on paper. Um, and lots of other officials, and uh, but you know, like. There's a guy named Dmitry Kluyev. He's the head of the Kluyev Organized Crime Group. Um, and he probably got like $30 million out of the whole thing. He was the sort of general contractor of the scam. And then the mm. police officers that did the, the raids, they got a million or two. The tax official, the lady who organized mm. the tax refund, her husband got $11 million at Credit Suisse. And we, we, got, we got all the money. But it's interesting. it's interesting at the time that the way that this criminal enterprise state-sanctioned, state-operated, state-sponsored, however it is, the way this enterprise decides to raid its own piggy bank is through a tax refund. In other words, they don't just go to the tax authority and just take it. No, no. They still seem up, they still feel obligated somehow to create the pretense of a lawful mechanism for that kind of expropriation. That's, that sounds interesting to me in, at this point in time in 2023 to think about it then. Is it or not? No, it's, it's, it's just how they do, do stuff over there. Everything is done formalistically, you know, by the Still. law. Yeah. Still. And, and they've been doing it that way for like, you know, like during Stalin's time, um, during the purges, um, they would torture people to get them to sign a false confession, um, and then they would execute them. They would just, uh-huh. they wanted to have that piece of paper. They're like, there's this really weird sort of slavish adherence to procedure, <laughs> which carries on from then until now. Very interesting, weird. Yeah. You know, it's just how they do stuff. And and, um, and I guess they, they think that at some point maybe they're not going to be in power and they don't want a bunch of documents out there that could easily be, you know, used to, you know, come after them. I, I, you know, it's hard to know exactly how much of it is just sort of almost muscle memory of versus, <laughs> you know, thoughtful action. But th- this is how they do stuff. And, and in any event, so, so we figured yeah. this out. Well, we figured out the scam. And we expose the scam. And Sergei um, writes criminal complaints to every different law enforcement agency in Russia. I go to the media. We make it public. And then Sergei goes to the um, Russian authorities and gives sworn testimony against the, uh, 
um, all the people involved in the scam. And, wow. And then we, and we thought that, that, that the whole thing would collapse. It's a major scandal, you know, that the good guys would get the bad guys. And, and, uh, and it turned out that there are no good guys. Um, well, five weeks after Sergei testified, the same people he testified against um, arrested him, uh, put him in pretrial detention. This was end of November uh, 2008. Oof. And then they started torturing him in prison to try to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him oh, my goodness. 14 inmates, eight beds, leave the lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Oof. Cells with no heat. In December, in Moscow, nearly freezes to death. They put him in cells with uh, uh, no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage bubbles up and sell to sell to sell it's like really a hardcore sort of exercise and the purpose of all this they want him they want him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers they want him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the 230 million dollars and he did so on my instruction and uh, oh my goodness wow of of incredible integrity he was just a a sort of uh i mean almost naive um idealistic integrity and he um, just refused. He, he would not bear false witness. He would not perjure himself. And so the torture got worse and worse. Um, oh. After about six months of this, um, he ended up getting sick. He developed terrible pains in his stomach. Oh, my goodness. Diagnosed as having uh, uh, pancreatitis and gallstones. Uh, <laughs> lost 40 pounds. And he was supposed to have an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. A week before the operation, they again come to him, again ask him to sign a false confession. Again, he refuses. And they move him from a prison uh, that had the medical facilities where he should have gotten an operation to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the most awful prisons in Russia. Mm. And most significantly for Sergei, there was no medical facilities there. Mm. At Butyrka, he goes into a terrible downward spiral. He and his lawyers write 20 different desperate requests for medical attention. Every one of those requests was either ignored or refused. And on the night of November 16, 2009, he goes into critical condition. On that night, um, the authorities at Buchirka didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore, and so they put him in an ambulance, sent him across town to a different prison. When he arrives there, instead of putting him in the uh, emergency room, uh, they put him in an isolation cell, they chain him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. Um, he was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That was November 16th, 2009. So about Where are his wife and children now? Uh, thankfully, they're living safely in, in California. But, Thank um, God. Long story getting them there. Was there a moment, did there come a moment in time when you understood... Or did it happen gradually or some other way that you would spend perhaps the rest of your life devoted to vindicating this young man, to vindicating what he stood for, your good name, the names of your colleagues, and seeking the defeat and removal or otherwise the surrender of Putin and his allies? Did there come a time when you knew this was your vocation? Or did it just happen to you, and then you look back and realize it's at some point it did happen to you? you know, it happened. That that point was the morning of November seventeenth, two thousand nine, the day I got the news that Sergei Magnitsky had been killed. Mm. You know, for me, it was the most horrifying, heartbreaking, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. Um, 
he, he died because he worked for me. He was killed because he worked for me. And so, what is that moment? It's such a rare moment. There, 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 are, there are moments in other people's lives who are not devoted to projects as significant, as national, as global, as historically important, as, as visible as yours. But there are moments that many people feel that, oh, I come to understand something's important to me. What, is that, what did that moment look like? It was the morning after his demise. You understood that he had worked for you. You understood that he was killed because he worked for you and that he stood up for you and he stood up for what you stood for and so forth. What, did you say something to someone? Did you write something down? Did you talk to God or not to God? Did you, what did that actual moment, that intimate moment, revealing whatever you feel comfortable revealing, what did that moment feel like or look like? Did you call someone and say, this is what I think I'm going to do? And they called you back and said, yeah, that's what you ought to do. What, what, is it, what does it sound like or look like, that moment in time that you've changed the focus of your life for as long as it turns out you have? Well, so for the first hour or two after getting the news, it was just like, you know, raw heartbreak and hysteria. Grief. Just, you know, unbelievable no. grief. I mean, I, I, it was so far beyond my worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have even imagined it. And then, you know, it started to sink in. And I, I, I left, I got this call at 7.15. And when I was finally able to calm down and, and <laughs> get myself together, I made my way to my office um, to meet my colleagues. And I got and gathered everybody in the conference room. And I said, we're going to use all of our time, all of our resources and all of our energy to go after these bastards and make sure that they face justice. And that's what we've been doing ever since. So that was it. You, you had that terrible sorrow, and then you got dressed, basically. You went to the office and announced this was your life plan. Yeah, and, and everybody else joined in. And the guys who worked with me um, on, on that day continue to work with me today. And that's, this is for 13, 14 years later now. And this is, this is what we've been doing, all of us, not just me. And, is there... Is it a fair question? Do you still love Russia or the Russian people, capital T, capital R, capital P. Do you distinguish between Russians and the government, or do you feel that that distinction is no longer apt? Um, you can reformulate the, this question, of course, to your own preference, but do you, I think you understand what I'm asking. Sergey was Russian. Um, yes, he was. My wife His family's Russian. Russian, right? Your, your wife is Russian? My colleagues are Russian, the ones who have basically given up a life of, you know, making money to get justice along with me. Mm. So, so, I mean, the Russian people, uh, you know, Russia's an occupied country, occupied by... Russia's an occupied country, occupied by criminals. And, and, um, wow. And, and, there are, and there are collaborators, many, um, and there are good ones who are doing, taking great, grave risks to stand up to the regime. Mm. Uh, who I'm friendly with and who have, and you know, we've read about some of them uh, in the West. Um, these are close friends of mine, and, and you know, the, the sacrifice that it needs to be made by people to stand up to this criminality is, mm. you know, you know, you have to be a hero just to be a decent human being in Russia, and uh, you know, the, the hero, I mean, the, the the risks that you take just to be a decent human being are so extreme, and so. I don't blame all Russians for what's going on by any means. And there's some very good people there and, and some very bad people there. Um, I used to say that it's, you know, there's a, like a million bad ones and 140 million good ones. I think that it's probably not quite 
So um, I think there's more bad ones than a million looking at the way that a lot of people are behaving over there. But, but, um, and have they become bad, as you say, have you become bad because they have been saturated with a propaganda? Have they become bad because it's the only way to thrive? And that's something about the human condition? Or is there something that you believe you've observed about the culture or the civilization that enables that trend or reveals that trend over time? What's your estimation? Well, you know, Russia has been under the, um, it's been sub subjugated for a long, long time, well, long before Putin came around. And, and mm -hmm. you know, the, there was the, the whole communist era, and, you know, Stalin and Lenin and all these characters. And basically what, what, what's happened over a long period of time is that anybody who had any um, uh, sort of decent instincts um, had those instincts beaten out of them to a certain extent because uh -huh. if you t took initiative, if you tried to like do the right thing, if you wanted to be, uh, you know, looking after people beyond yourself, you know, you were sent off to the camps, you were arrested, mm. you know, all sorts of terrible stuff. And so, mm. so what's happened in Russia over a long period of time is that, is that everyone has become really narrowly focused on just themselves and their families. So if you go to the visit like a, a uh, uh, wealthy Russian in central Moscow. You go to the you go to an apartment, and the inside the apartment is the most glorious art and marble floors and unbelievable furniture and so on and so forth. And then you go out into the hallway, and, and it smells of urine because nobody's you know, they, they can't even cooperate in their own apartment buildings to like clean things up. Everybody is uh -huh. just so heavily focused on themselves and their uh -huh. and their very closest friends, and it's just and that's just sort of a survival mechanism, and it's not. But but it, it's it's very disgusting, actually. I, uh -huh. I've I've been you know I, I, I occasionally speak to Russian some like people that are part of the Russian society still. Like when there was a a woman who's um, runs a has a YouTube channel and she wanted to come interview me. Her name is Senya Sobchak. She's Putin's goddaughter. And my my co colleague said we shouldn't talk to her. And I thought well she's got like four million followers on YouTube. Let, let's let's do the interview and see. And she, she spent the whole interview saying, isn't it unfair that like regular people can't get stuff in Moscow and so on and so forth? And I was like, no, it's not unfair. Isn't it unfair that you're killing Ukrainians? You should do everything possible to stand up. And, and we had this big sort of... Oh, because, because she's saying to you, isn't it unfair that the sanctions... This is what, she, this is what she's trying to communicate, yeah. just to unpack it for our audience. She is trying to suggest that the sanctions that have been imposed by the West in response to Russia's warfare and invasion of Ukraine, those sanctions are responsible for the deprivation of everyday people in Moscow. That's what she's trying to explain to the, her listening audience. And you say, no, go ahead. No, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's not unfair. Right. It's unfair okay. that Ukrainians are dying in the hundreds of thousands because of actions of your government. And if that's the, you know, you should be standing up to your government. Um, but you know, your problems of not being able to watch Netflix and use Instagram are, are just completely not even on the radar screen. And you and, should stop And what was her response? Well, you know, she said, well, you know, we can't change anything. And, you know, it's, you know, it's not our fault. It's not our government. We, we, you know, we don't want it either, but we, it's not our fault. And it's like, well, you know, that, that's unfortunate for you but, that you're Russian. But, you know, by being in Russia... You know, you're collectively responsible for this. Maybe you're mad at the wrong people. Is is the is the idea? Well, the whole point is that, like, how could you be so so insensitive 
to like mm. worry about um, uh, your Netflix subscription. <laughs> has there has there been you've you've interacted with many legislators and also um, you know executives of government in in around the world in this campaign this Magnitsky campaign that you have launched and persisted alongside your colleagues as you as you've pointed out has there been specifically a u.s president or a uk prime minister you're now a british person has there been specifically a u.s president or uk prime minister who in your opinion especially well understood putin or especially poorly understood putin i, w- I would say that, that every u.s president has poorly understood P- putin and in what way um, they all thought that that their massive charm and charisma could win him over and they could somehow like uh, get him to behave because there's a certain arrogance among U.S. presidents that it's pretty hard to get to be a president and therefore you're a pretty special guy and you can like use your personal genius to convince this bad guy to be less bad and everybody did that and Putin took advantage of every every U.S. president in like allowing them to have believe that, that he could be you know influenced uh-huh. and so they would be sort of lenient with him for a period of time until they realized that he was just this monstrous evil man who couldn't be influenced. And then they then just started being tough again. But every time we've had a U.S. president and a British prime minister and a German prime minister and German chancellor and, a, you know, so on and so forth, it's all the same stuff. Everybody thinks that they have some capacity to change this guy. And of course... Any exceptions? Any, any European leaders or other global leaders you think do understand or you've been impressed with their understanding of Putin? Well, basically, anybody who comes from, from like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, these are countries that were occupied by the Soviets, Poland, they understand what, what, uh, what, what Russia is all about. They, ha- they have the vocabulary to understand. They have, they have the, the personal experience of their family members being taken away and sent to Siberia and killed in the gulags. And so they understand what's going on. Um, and and, and I, I, you know, as I was working on these campaigns, I always had great common cause with these people from... Lithuania and Estonia and Poland, and everyone always thought that we were like the like extremists. Like you know, you guys just like have it's like you know, get over it. We're in a different world now, um, and uh, of course we weren't. We weren't. But uh, I found that to be repeatedly true in other in other fields where sort of um, I think people would say that it's hard to get past your priors when you encounter someone who is truly different, the kind of character you'd see in a book or a novel or a movie, um, but you encounter them in real life, it, it's sort of hard to persuade someone else who's never encountered such a person in real life that they, these people really exist. And so if you've never dealt, you know, like a Lithuanian, as a Lithuanian has or Estonian has, uh, with someone as you're characterizing, as you're characterizing it like Putin, then it would just be difficult to accept it. And, and therefore you, your observation must be somehow deficient is the assumption. Um, is, so, so in the kind of the circles in which I live and, and, and work and also my audience, I think there's a, a big discussion, a big debate, question mark, is because we're asking about nuclear weapons and so forth and the Ukraine conflict, it often comes up with that context. Is Vladimir Putin a rational actor or is he a lunatic? No, very rational. Very and rational, so, okay. So, so Putin... But, but you have to understand that he's rational based on his own set of, of um, risk-reward and values. So he, 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 is, um, uh, he has no empathy, so he has no, and he has no conscience. 
he doesn't sleep badly at night if, you know, 100,000 young men are killed that um, work for him. Um, he, he, he doesn't care. Um, mm. uh, his, his main objective is just personally to stay alive, stay, stay in power, well, to stay, to stay in power in order to stay alive um, so he's, and to keep all his money and to have his freedom. That he, and so he, the crux of the whole thing is that if he ever loses power, and, um, he'll go to jail, lose his money, and die. And so his main objective is just to stay alive. And, um, and he's ready to make unbelievable sacrifices uh, to stay in power, to stay alive. Can you offer a prediction as to what you think will happen in the Ukraine? Um, uh, I think that this, this is going to be a war that carries on and carries on and carries on. Vladimir Putin can't give up because if he does, um, he dies. He loses power and he dies. And Ukrainians can't give Can up. Can you explain that? If he, if he decides to somehow try to seek an end with saving face something, something, um, does that, why, why, does he, why does he end up dying? Can you explain that? So Russia is like a prison yard. And, um, and the, the guy in charge of the prison yard um, is the guy who's seen as most brutal, most horrifying, most, you know, he's like Putin is a guy with a shank, goes into the prison yard, picks the biggest guy on the yard, and then shanks him repeatedly, blood spurting everywhere. And then oh, that, no. that's, that's how he establishes himself. And, and, um, and in order to stay the boss of the prison yard, you've got to be seen, continue to be seen to be the meanest, toughest, nastiest piece of work out there, and and um, and so if, if he were to compromise with Ukraine and say, you know, okay, we're, we're, we actually we're not going to win this war, and we're just going to take what we got, and you give us this, and blah blah blah, um, that would be seen as as like you know a total weak move. Uh -huh. And and I, I'm not just speculating. I mean, I've seen him in action. I've been in conflict with the guy for more than a decade. He never compromises on anything. He always mm. just. He, he always just takes the most extreme position in everything and just runs with it. He, he never, never, there's never a negotiation, ever. And so the supposition is that someone would try to take him out, uh, challenge him for power, if he were to show weakness. If he shows weakness, then someone else would show up, like this Prigozhin guy, for example, who's no, now no longer with us. He would show up and say, you know, Putin is a wuss. He's like a really weak man. Let's talk about that. Did, is Prigozhin dead and did Putin kill him? Prigozhin is dead, Putin killed him, and he Putin okay. needed to kill him. Why on earth, why on earth, you know these people better than most, maybe not personally, but certainly through observation, and some of them probably personally. Why on earth did Prigozhin stop his march, his drive on Moscow? What happened to persuade him to stop? Did someone threaten to kill his family? What happened? They threatened to kill his family. That was it? Yeah, and, and to kill him, and... And, uh, you know, he, but he uh, must have known he was, his days were numbered at the, as soon as he gave up, no? Well, this, this, these, you, you can't like, assume too much like, stuff about these people. I mean, this is like a bar fight. You know, so he was brawling with a bunch of other guys. Um, they tried to kill him. He's trying to kill them. It's just all emotions going wildly out of control. I mean, these are just cold-blooded killers that have a lot of and, and brutality associated with them. And, um, and so I don't think it was all that well planned out, what he had done. I think it all kind of took on its own life and its own momentum. And um, it's, it's like sort of office politics is spun way, wildly out of control. 
And, um, and so he found himself in a, in a situation where he was fighting with some other guys, and he ended up having to challenge Putin because Putin sided with these other guys. And then they, and, and they're not very good at stopping, you know, armed rebellions. I mean, that, that, that they're not very good at. They're, they're, they're good at, like, kidnapping people. They're good at, like, targeted assassinations. They're good at, like, arresting people. But they're not good at, like, you know, dealing with 8,000 murderers marching, um, marching on you. Hold on one second. I just need to... Um, For those listening, Bill is checking an email because he remains an intensely busy guy. And we certainly afford him this luxury because he gives us his time in the midst of his busy day with many demands on his time. All right, back with you. Um, okay, turns out this is a very perfect time for something we like to do. Ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That's a real bell that just came in. We call this speed round. So a little, a little change of tempo here. A little bit of fun, Bill. Um, you don't have to answer any of these. Fish or chips? Uh, chips. Okay. Do you ever eat the fish and the fish and chips? Uh, I, don't, I don't have fish and chips. Okay, fine. Sushi for sushi, salmon or tuna? Uh, uh, both. Oh, no. Tuna fish or egg salad? Uh, I, I, neither. <laughs> Plain pizza or pepperoni? Pepperoni, for sure. Uh, okay, for sure. There we go. There's Chicago. Fine. Now, long or short, Rishi Sunak? Um, is he long? Am I long? Are you long, are you long him or short him? Well, first of all, he's a very short man. Uh, <laughs> okay, very short guy. It's true. guy. I know he's got like another like twelve months left in his in his premiership, and then Labor is going to take over this country. Okay, so you're short his career, let's say. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean he's really a, he was sort of a placeholder guy. I mean he's like the fourth choice, you know, prime minister after everyone they burned through everybody else. Long or short, Joe Biden? Ah, good question. Um, well, I, I'm I'm not long Joe Biden, but I'm short Donald Trump. Okay, fair enough. That was the next one. Great. How long will Vladimir Zelensky be alive? Um, I think he'll be alive longer than Vladimir Putin will be alive. Great. We're coming to that. Great. Long or short, the European Union stays together? Uh, it'll definitely stay together. Are you today, not back then, today, are you long or short Brexit? Are you supportive of Brexit today or short Brexit today? I think it was the stupidest thing that, could, that Britain could have ever done. And, and it's now proven to be the stupidest thing that Britain could have ever done. That is responsive. You're getting to the spirit of the speed round. Who will be the president of the United States in 2025? Ah, good question. Um, probably Joe Biden, I think, um, just because um, I don't think that Donald Trump is, is an electable um, candidate. Will Donald Trump go to jail? Sorry. Will Donald Trump be convicted on any of the current four sets of charges now in which, under which he sits now on indictment? Okay, but he will be convicted. Okay. Where will Vladimir Putin be in 10 years? Um, Vladimir Putin will probably be dead in 10 years. Uh, How will he die? Hard to say. I mean, most likely he'll die of old age, as, as uh, uh, most dictators do. Do you think he's just going to survive and be wily enough to survive? Uh, well, I think there's probably a 65% chance that he survives and a 35% chance that he gets overthrown. The 65 is still, uh, you know, greater than... Pretty good. 
Okay, changing changing gears for a minute. Um, why did you renounce U.S. If you're willing to talk about, it, why did you renounce U.S. citizenship, and was it um, was it an emotional process for you? Did you experience any emotional attachment when you're renouncing or uttering those words, which are so unique? I've read about them, or was it not a big deal for you? Do you regret it? Um, so my, my my family history played a big part in this whole thing, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. My grandfather was a famous communist. My grandfather's um, uh, wife, uh, my grandmother, was from. He met her in Moscow in 1927, and um, they moved together back to America in 1932. Um, he was head of the American Communist Party um, for 13 years, um, but then in, he he was then kicked out of the Communist Party. But in the 1950s. He was um, persecuted really viciously um, uh, by Senator Joseph McCarthy and, and, and the whole you know, House Subcommittee on Un-American Activities. And, and, the, and the, the full force of the American government went against my family. And, and there was a particularly bad incident where my grandmother, who was from Russia, who at the time was, was um, dying of cancer, um, the authorities came to the family home and wanted to arrest her and deport her um, as part of this political persecution of my family while she was dying of cancer. And so I've always had kind of a, a feeling that America is kind of, it's a great country sometimes, but, it, it's, but things can go horribly wrong. Um, and um, I've been living in the UK and I, uh, for a while and I've been granted citizenship and I decided that um, uh, I would relinquish my US citizenship and just become uh, British. And interestingly, it was a smart decision because in 2018, at the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki, um, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. And Trump said yes. And um, Donald that, Trump agreed to hand over Bill Browder to Vladimir Putin. Is that officially understood and known and true and officially yeah, characterized public on, information? It was on television. You could watch Putin it on, on TV. TV. I didn't know this. Putin on TV asks Donald Trump, give me, give me your Bill Browder. Yeah. And Trump says, sure, I'll do that. He, he said, great. And so wow. I, I, my, my decision was, uh, I, I mean, actually, at the time that happened, I was actually in, in Aspen, Colorado. But, but not being an American, I mean, the way I see things kind of, I mean, if Trump were reelected right now, um, I couldn't travel into the United States. But at least he wouldn't have jurisdiction over me as an American citizen. And so things were really kind of got, got off the rails in America in the last you know, six years. And, um, okay, so you're not, you're not, you don't regret, you don't regret it at all, renouncing your citizenship. How did you get to become a British citizen? I want to sign up. <laughs> okay. Why do you think the West is supporting the Ukraine as much as it is in its conflict with Russia? First of all, why? First of all, why? And then secondly, is the West supporting the Ukraine too much, too little, adequately? What's your opinion on that? Secondly. Um, uh, the, the United States is supporting Ukraine for a very specific reason, which is that the, um, uh, if, if, Ukraine, if Russia wins in Ukraine, um, the next stop is Poland or Estonia, who are NATO allies. And if, um, then we have, we're, we're faced with a terrible dilemma. Do we um, uh, go to war with Russia or do we abandon our NATO allies? Um, this is the best investment uh, we could ever make um, without the loss of a single American life. Um, I think it's something like three three percent of the U.S. defense budget is spent on on supporting Ukraine, 
and we're able to, to completely kneecap and disable um, one of the two most important adversaries we have in the world. It's just I, I, do, I do not hesitate to observe that when you're describing American policy, you still use the word we, which may suppose to me, may prompt me to suggest you do have a whinge of regret that you are no longer American. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm British. I'm, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a... Uh, uh, it's a reflex. It's, it's an old habit, but but um, uh, I'm I'm very happy to to be a citizen of, of Great Britain. Do you think the West is supporting Ukraine enough? Too little or too much? Or some other answer you'd like to give? Um, very very simple. Um, if we had given Ukraine more uh, military support and not hesitated, and not held back, the world would be over by now. Um, and yes. Ukraine would have won. But Ukraine would. And win. then what would have happened to Putin? Well, I think if Ukraine wins and gets rid of Russia, then Putin um, naturally um, dissolves in his, in his own morass. He ends up dead somehow. Or, yeah, some version of that. So you do not think that the West is supporting Ukraine, for example, in some measurable part because they're trying to send a signal to China about Taiwan? Well, I think that that's one of the nice byproducts of this whole thing is that you know, that there is intended consequences and then unintended consequences. I don't think that, that that's the specific, I think that's an unintended consequence and a good one, which is sending to, you know, we, we, we've, we've been, uh, for the last 20 years, and I say we, I, I, I collectively, the West has been sort of, you know, appeasing dictators, Putin in particular. And, and all dictators think, wow, we can get away with a lot of stuff. And now all of a sudden they see that, that um, even without giving Ukraine enough to win, We've given Ukraine enough to make life absolutely miserable for Putin, and the Chinese are not stupid. They understand that 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 there's a lot. You know, if we decide to like not be happy about something, we could really make life difficult for them. There's a portrait. I think we're looking at you in your office. There's a portrait over your shoulder, and I believe from a distance it looks like Vi Lenin, yeah, who is speaking from the bully pulpit in a kind of. Uh, mannerist style of Soviet propaganda, if I had to guess, the kind of sweeping reds and the shadows and light. Yeah. What is that painting, and why is it the only painting we can see, for those of us who are watching, in your office? Well, there's lots of other paintings on the wall here. Let me, let me, uh, let me turn the thing here. So that's a, paint, that's a picture of Sergei Magnitsky. Um, uh, it's a collage of Sergei Magnitsky and do various articles and photos and heroic shots in a collage, professionally done, it looks like. And we have, uh, let me see if I can turn this thing. Uh, oops. And then there's some more paintings over there. There's a picture of a woman reading my book, Red Notice, and um, other, I think that's the uh, uh, other pictures and paintings. And so a on. lot of art and portraits and so forth. But this is pa paint a painting that's right there. Why is it there? What does it mean to you? Oh, I think I picked that up in Moscow um, at the very early time when I was there. I had all this nostalgia about my grandfather, and that was how I ended up having it. And, and uh, um, you know, here in the middle of the former asset manager, still family office, Hermitage, the great capitalist outfit, is a portrait of V.I. Lenin in action. Okay, um, all, all part of my history. All part of your history. Fine, personal history. It, what are you working on now? Um, what should we? What would you like us to know about your current? Magnitsky efforts or anything else, and how can we learn more about them, Bill Browder? 
Well, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Bill Browder. Um, I'm a regular. Um, I have everything about Twitter, as much as it's gone sort of down the tubes because of Elon Musk. It's still a, uh, a way in which I could effectively be my own, have my own media channel. Uh, and I spent a lot of time on on um, uh, continuing to try to help Russian dissidents. My, I've got a friend, Vladimir Karamurza, who helped me with the Magnitsky Act. He's a Russian dissident who's now in jail, spending in Russia, in, in jail in Russia, 25 years, trying to get him out, trying to help the Ukrainians um, on the. Uh, there's 350 billion dollars of Russian central bank reserves frozen. I've spent the last 13 years working on legislation to freeze assets all over the world. I'd like to help the Ukrainians seize those assets. I think to to get the frozen assets from Russia and move them to the Ukrainian government people, something. To use for the defense and reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh-huh. Um, and, then I, and then I have a bunch of other sort of projects of, of different people falsely imprisoned or different, different abuses. I'm trying to help out different, different people use the Magnitsky Act in, in situations in Nicaragua and China against you know, the, for the Uyghur genocide and Iran, etc. And so, um, I'm pretty much a full-time human rights activist. Um, so you anyway. you do you do see significant parallels between Chinese oppression and Russian oppression? Oh yeah, I mean, well, it's the Chinese are, are cleverer at their repression, but um, they're a little more. They, they they somehow make it slightly less extreme in the visible sense. And so they're, they're more tolerated, but the Chinese are, you know, it's a total police state over there. Mm. And, uh, and they've got a lot of nasty instincts, including, you know, genocide against minority religious groups like the Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs, the Muslim population of Western China, chiefly, is what you're describing. Yeah. What, okay, so you just said some things that are more important than the tantalizing tidbit that I'm about to call out as we end here. But it sounded to me as if you do not have a favorable opinion of Elon Musk. Can you explain that? Well, he's, he's, um, uh, he, he's one of these people who um, came up with some really stupid stuff about how that Ukraine should give away their territory and they should allow Putin to um, you know, be rewarded for his illegal invasion. And uh, he like switched off the uh, Starlink in the... Uh, uh, in the occupied territories of Ukraine, the temporarily occupied territories of Ukraine, and he's uh, done all this idiotic stuff of, of like allowing complete just bot farms to infect his uh, Twitter. And, uh, you know, when, when I go onto For You for, on, on Twitter, you know, he's supporting Vivek Rashwami um, and like giving him. I see like every third tweet is a Vivek Rashwami tweet where he's like talking about climate change not existing or Ukraine capitulating and all sorts of stuff. And so, um, you know, Elon Musk, does, he and I don't share a lot of uh, opinions or values. Or do policy. you, do you have an opinion? Do you believe that the zero hedge Twitter handle, are you familiar with this Twitter handle? I know them. Yeah. Do, are you, do you believe that zero hedge is somehow compromised by Russian interests? Well, I'm sitting here in London, um, uh, which is the libel capital of the world, and so I won't... You mustn't on. answer. You don't feel comfortable answering. Fine. It was just yeah, a question. I, I, yeah, I've yeah. read that on Twitter a number of times. I don't follow Zero Hedge, but it's, I've read on Twitter. It, it's, it surprised me, and it came up in the context of Elon Musk because there, some of the criticism, actually, in fact, I believe, I read it in the Financial Times, if memory serves, some of the criticism of Elon Musk by some Russia experts was that 
Elon Musk gives too much credibility to this particular Twitter handle, which seems to talk a lot about sort of financial topics, but then sometimes talks about Russian-related topics, it seems, and they were accused of being, it's an anonymous Twitter handle, accused of being Russian sympathetic or propaganda or compromised. And I wondered if you had an opinion on it. What you're, I th you seem to be objective. Look, just, just in fairness about Elon Musk, he did keep on free, if I'm not mistaken, according to him. He has sustained on a free basis the Starlink all, all across at least, at least non-occupied Ukraine. Is that not true? And does that not affect your opinion? Um, it's not true. <laughs> so it might it's not be, true. It's, it's false. Not true. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, uh, there's a big story about how he was trying to shake down the U.S. government for $400 million by threatening to turn off Starlink. Um, so he's a businessman. Let's not mistake him for some type of humanitarian. Okay, so you have a very... Um, let me say this. You do not have a positive view, broadly speaking, of Elon Musk, at least when he wades into topics of geopolitics or climate change. Perhaps you admire him as an entrepreneur, I don't know. But at least vis-a-vis -vis his uh, political and philosophical utterings, you're not, you're not quite so bullish on him. Our, our values don't align in almost all the areas where he's... Our values don't align. Okay, very strong statement. Okay. Bill Browder... Um, an honor and a privilege to talk with, um, let me say it again, a very possibly likely future Nobel Prize winner. You are an unusual person. Um, it's hard, it's unusual to meet someone who devotes his life to a mission as much as you have. Many people in Silicon Valley describe themselves as mission-driven. Many people in technology, many people in life now describe themselves as mission-driven. You are literally mission-driven. Um, every day, and you've done it on a sustained basis for uh, 15 years, almost. And it seems you're not slowing down. It seems, in fact, you're doubling down and broadening. It seems that the financial parts of your life are all sort of now delivered in service of these missions you're on. Um, and uh, the sustained effort, and also the effect with reference to the Magnitsky Act of 2012 and so forth, has been astounding. Um, it, is, it has been a great pleasure to know you personally, as I have, and also now to interview you here on the Finally podcast. I want to say thank you, and I hope that perhaps after next year's election, uh, we can invite you back. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so we're Everybody, this has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.